I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, and today our guest is Jim Langston, an M&A partner at Cleary Gottlieb in New York. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, David. It's a pleasure to be here today. So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, your background, how you came to practice M&A. Secondly, the increased role of government in M&A in a whole range of ways. And then finally, tennis, which is a hobby you've taken up during the pandemic. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, sure, David. So I'm from North Carolina, grew up, born and raised there in a town called Winterville, which is a strange name for for that place because on a day like today or this time of the year, it's one of the hottest places in the world and the the humidity will just squeeze the breath right out of you. But but that's where I grew up. Uh, You know, it was a small town, one and a half stoplights is I like to say I grew up on a dirt road, can remember sitting out on the porch with my mom, watching them pave the road when I was in middle school. And my grandmother lived on one side of me and my, my uncle, my dad's brother, lived on the, the other side of me. So it was a small town, great place to grow up, uh, a strong sense of community. Everyone knew each other, cared about each other and tried to support one another best they could. And so that, that's where things started. Uh, you know, I won't say that I was restless, but, you know, when I got to high school and started growing up, I, I wanted to see what else was out there, what, what was outside Pitt County. That took me to UNC Chapel Hill, which is about two hours away from Winterville, but it's really on a different planet in, in a lot of different ways. And Met lots of people that were very different than the folks I grew up with, was exposed to all sorts of new ideas, and, and it was awesome. It was really everything I had been looking for, and in many ways, it was set my hair on fire. And, and I think one class I took there um, was this class called Law and American History, and I think that really that class resonated with me. And, you know, as the name was suggest, it was about the role of law in American history and how, you know, law and policy intersected and, and how law shaped the country. And I just found that fascinating. And I think that probably more than anything else was what set me on the path to law school. And so then left UNC Chapel Hill and went across the street and, and went to UNC Law School which is great school and you know, happy to have been there. And it was, you know, I wasn't ready to leave North Carolina yet. So it was the, the right fit in, in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I started in, in law school, on my, my first semester of law school, I was up in, in New York City visiting one of my college roommates who was from there. And it was New Year's Eve, which is my birthday. And <laughs> while I was up there, it was a great birthday. And while I was up there in New York City, uh, I met this woman and, and fell head over heels in love with her. And, you know, at that point, just had to be with her. And she, you know, like my friend, had been born and raised in New York. There was no way I was getting her to leave New York. And so at that point in time, I did everything I could to get to New York. And so I got a book out. I remember going to the Career Resources Center at, at the law school. and. 
you know, looking up the top law firms and, you know, the other nonprofit legal organizations in, in New York City. And I, I set out, started you know, writing my resumes, getting those together. And I sent out what felt like hundreds uh, of resumes and just really blanketed the city. At that point, even today, a lot of the New York firms don't recruit heavily at Chapel Hill, correct? Yeah, no, that, that's right. And I, I literally, I think, uh, despite sending out you know hundreds of resumes, got one interview in New York City. It must have been the worst cover letter uh, that had ever been written. And it's interesting, like Cleary was one of the firms that I got a rejection letter from. And it, as luck would have it, it was signed by the hiring partner at the time, which was, you know, common practice. And he ended up being one of the people, once I got back to Cleary, the story doesn't end there. One of the people I was closest to in this world and was a real great mentor to me, both personally and professionally. And I still have the letter that he signed and I, and I still tease him about it too, that, you know, subsequently I, I had another interview, uh, I got an offer and, and came back. And really it was that second hiring partner who, who saved him from making one of the biggest mistakes of his life. So did you, so you, you got to New York, did you know you wanted to practice corporate law or you just knew you wanted to be in New York and you thought you would figure it out from there? Yeah, I just knew I wanted to be in New York. You know, I, I wanted to be with Olivia. I, I wanted to be with the best and the brightest and I wanted to go to a law firm. That's what that meant to me at the time. And, you know, I wanted to be a litigator, criminal procedure, civil procedure, evidence, constitutional law. I, that you know, really got me going. I, I love that in, in law school and thinking about those issues and, and thought I would end up being a litigator. At the time, you know, the economy was much like it is today. The M&A market was booming. There was a high demand for M&A lawyers. Everywhere I interviewed, they liked me, but they wanted me to be a corporate lawyer. So I figured I'd give it a shot. And if it didn't work out, I could always turn to being a litigator. And I got my foot in the door, started working on M&A deals, and it, it just fit. It worked. I mean, it was sort of the high stakes that I had always associated with being in the courtroom and, and being a litigator. I enjoyed the psychology of it, what motivated people, the, the strategy and, and putting all that together to, to fashion a deal just, just really worked for me. And so that's how it happened. You started practicing in 2006 at, at the height of the private equity bubble. I, how did you react as you saw a completely different kind of deal in 2008 and 2009? And then how did you make your way to clear it? Yeah, sure. So it shifted in a number of ways. As you said, the M&A market you know, screeched to a halt. And all of a sudden, many, if not all of the M&A lawyers were spending their time you know, restructuring Wall Street and the automotive industry. And at the time, the firm I was at, we had been hired to represent the president, President Obama's automotive task force and were the president's lawyers uh, outside counsel who were working on the, the Chrysler and then the General Motors restructuring. And so it was really taking, you know, those skills that I had learned as a corporate lawyer to help navigate those companies and, and the government helped navigate those companies through the bankruptcy process and, 
and come out with significant U.S. ownership, which is something I had never seen and, and never thought that I had seen. You know, the market recovered and the, the big public company and, and LBO transactions came back. And so that, you know, took the place of the distressed M&A transactions soon enough and then spent the rest of my time doing those. You know, when I came to practice at a law firm, as I said, I was just looking to learn and didn't know if that's kind of where my trajectory was or, or where I would end up spending my career. I liked it. I liked being a, a law firm, the camaraderie, you know, being part of a team and, and having an objective and, and a mission and you know, the pace of it all. So I figured out that was what I wanted to do. And the firm I was at was a great place, great people. I learned a lot, but it just wasn't the place for me where, where I wanted to be. And I set out, you know, interviewing, much like I had been, you know, four or five years before that, trying to find the place where I felt that I should be. And, you know, interviewed with Cleary, met those folks, and it just felt like home. It, it felt like the right place. I met Vic Lukow. He was a big gravitational pull to that. And so I decided to give Cleary a second chance, and it's worked out so far. You mentioned working on President Obama's task force to restructure the auto industry. What did you learn from that experience about government involvement in deal making and the economy more broadly? And how is what we're seeing now similar to or different from that experience in 2008 and 2009? Yeah, it's interesting parallels. You know, the government response to the great financial crisis wasn't as swift or as large. And I think in many ways, some of the lessons learned from that crisis informed the way the government responded today. And, and certainly, at least for the time being, and, and hopefully for not just the foreseeable future, but as far as we can see, what they've done has healed the economy. I mean, the M&A market has been roaring since May and June of last year. And I think it came back a lot quicker than most people would have envisioned at the outset of the, the pandemic. And I think that was by and large due to the swiftness of the government response. You know, the recovery this time around has been a little bit different than it was last time around. You know, all the usual players have returned to M&A around the same time. So you've seen corporates, private equity, DSPACs, sovereign wealth funds, family offices, you name it, have, have all gotten in on the action. And we've seen transactions of all shapes and sizes, mega cap dream deals, middle market deals undertaken by private equity funds or corporates as part of portfolio shaping and really everything in between. And so that wasn't the case the last time around. I think it took a lot longer for the M&A market to recover, and it certainly took a lot longer for the private equity industry to recover. I think, as you were saying, David, the the M&A recovery has been broad-based, and it has been resilient, and it's shaken off really a lot of headwinds, right? The second wave of the pandemic, inflation, dysfunction in Washington, the SEC, declaring war on SPACs and really record-breaking valuations. And I think that shows how strong the M&A tailwinds have been, right? The pent-up demand for M&A, low interest rates, abundant capital, the prospect of tax reform and shareholder support for M&A. But that doesn't mean there haven't been 
headwinds and one of the potential headwinds has been that the fact that across the globe, many regulators are taking a harder look at transactions and the metrics they are using to assess transactions are also evolving. And so antitrust is probably the highest stake issue in, in M&A today. And it's been interesting. It's not just something that's been happening in the US. It's also happening in Europe, in the UK, and in China. And it's even happening at the state level in the US. And it seems that no matter where you turn, big is now bad. And to try to bring some life into that, you know, last week, the China antitrust regulator blocked Tencent's proposed merger of two publicly traded game streaming services. And this wasn't China blocking a U.S. deal, which wouldn't have been surprising at all, but blocking a bid by Tencent, which is a China national champion, to consolidate two companies where it already owns 30% today and has significant influence. So I think that raised a lot of eyebrows. But to turn back to the U.S., you know, there's not a week that goes by that you don't see any trusts in the headlines, right? There's the tech cases, the appointment of Lena Khan as chair of the FTC, the, the slew of changes announced along party lines at the first FTC meeting she chaired, the dueling House and Senate antitrust bills, and most recently the Biden executive order. Then the list goes on and on. And it's not just about big tech. You know, big tech may be the primary target, but right now the DOJ is also going to court to block the Aon Willis merger, which was interestingly right before that same deal was conditionally cleared by the EU. And look, in terms of how this is translating into what we are seeing on the ground today, you know, for the time being, the FTC and the DOJ, they're not granting early termination of the HSR waiting period. So for the 95% or so deals that ordinarily don't present any competitive concern and in the past would have been cleared pretty quickly, those deals are now getting a closer look by the regulators. There's also been an uptick in what we call pull and refile situations. So if you get to the end of the 30-day HSR waiting period and the DOJ or the FTC are still on the fence, you'll typically pull the HSR filing and immediately refile it to start the 30-day clock, right? That gives you some time to answer their remaining questions and hopefully avoid a second request. So more deals are pulling and refiling. And then anecdotally, the regulators, I think, have also been asking questions about deals that they haven't asked in the past, including questions about the supply chain and who the parties are doing business with and deals that you know, don't really have vertical overlaps. And they're also asking questions about whether either the party's workforce is unionized. That's a bit of a change. And it seems tough to square with the consumer welfare standard that's guided antitrust reviews in the past. But we'll see whether that's just a shift in tone or a harbinger of something bigger. And now the question is going to be, what does that mean for deals? So how does this affect the advice you give both when parties are starting to consider a transaction and how you may draft antitrust-related provisions in the merger agreement, depending on whether you're representing a buyer or a seller? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think on the first point, having a clear-eyed view of the antitrust assessment from the outset and a playbook for navigating the new regulatory environment is critical. I mean, it really informs 
everything else about the deal today. And it's what C-suites and boards want to know. In terms of how it's shaping acquisition agreements, a couple of thoughts there. Not surprisingly, targets are pushing for tighter divestiture covenants and, and higher reverse breakup fees. Buyers are carefully, I think, assessing the antitrust risk profile, the implications to the deal, the financial model, and the timetable, and are trying to seek risk allocation in the contract that's more balanced and tailored to the actual risk. The other implication of this from an acquisition agreement perspective is that, you know, like as regulatory reviews take longer, I think parties are also paying close attention to outside dates and how long they think they're going to need to get the deal done. The operating covenants in the agreement, what ordinary course of business means, how long they're going to have to operate in that manner in a world that's volatile. How long is that going to last and how long are they going to have to abide by those covenants is something that buyers and sellers alike are thinking about. And then to the extent the deal's financed, you have to think about the optimal timetable for going to the market, getting that financing. And if it's further in advance of the closing than you would like, what are the costs of that going to be to fund that financing and to carry until you can close the deal? By and large, these are more issues for corporate buyers than private equity buyers, but I don't think private equity buyers are sitting idly by. They're thinking about how to use the more active regulatory environment to their advantage. And since they often present less antitrust risk than a corporate buyer, but not always, I think they will try to use this to tilt the competitive playing field to their advantage. But like, it's not all storm clouds on the horizon. Lots of deals are still getting done and will continue to get done. I think it just means that buyers and sellers need to have their eyes wide open. They need to be prepared. They need to have a strategy for getting the deal done. And they need to also think about the regulatory process from a communications planning perspective, how they're going to sell the deal, not just to regulators, but government officials, other stakeholders, And they need to be willing to advocate for the deal that they believe in early and often and in a manner that reflects this new environment and I think answers the questions that are on regulators' minds. That's what we're telling clients today. Obviously, in certain industries, especially the larger deals, would always have been expected to attract close regulatory scrutiny and regulatory scrutiny that could go on for months and last even longer than a year. How does the do the merger agreements on some of those deals, especially in telecom and financial services, to take two industries that are where regulators are very active, inform what companies may be doing now, both in those sectors and other sectors? Or has the environment changed enough that you feel like some of the answers you're coming up with now need to be new answers? Look, I I think there's nothing new under the sun, and this isn't the the first time in the modern era that we've had, you know, FTC and a DOJ that seem to be enforcement-minded from an antitrust perspective. And so I think it's really just returning to that same toolkit and coming up with strategies, one, to assess the risk profile making sure parties understand the risk that's involved and have a plan really to execute on the transaction, navigate the regulatory process and and get the deal done. 
I, I don't think it's there's anything new about it. And certainly people who are at the regulatory agencies, some of those folks are new and some of them have their own perspective and, and knowing those players and what is important to them, I think, informs the strategy. But I think it's using that same toolkit for this new era. As you mentioned, for 40 years, the standard for evaluating whether a merger is anti-competitive is its effect on consumers. How much risk do you see in both on the whole and for an individual transaction that the FTC or the DOJ evaluates a transaction on some other standard? Yeah, well, I guess I'd say a couple things. One, it's really situation specific and it's not just the FTC or the DOJ involved. There's also the courts as well as the legislative branch that can play a role in this process. And it's really still early days in the Biden administration from an antitrust perspective. Lena Khan was just recently appointed as chair of the FTC. The DOJ antitrust division in, in many ways is still leaderless. So it's still too soon to tell whether there's going to be a shift and if so, how it will impact transactions. But it's certainly something that folks are closely watching. And you know, in some ways, it kind of parallels what we've seen take place in corporate governance in recent years, right? I mean, one of the ideas that has taken hold in corporate America over the last five years or so is the stakeholder governance concept, right? And the idea that with the license to operate comes the obligation of the corporation, not just to maximize shareholder value, but to serve the interest of a broader set of stakeholders, including employees, customers, and the community. And I don't think that movement was conceived or has flourished in a vacuum, right? But it really grew out of some of the important issues of the day, climate change, growing wealth, inequality, human capital management, diversity, equity, inclusion, failure of political leadership and the like. I think in some ways, what you see going on in Washington today mirrors the undercurrents that have been propelling that stakeholder purpose movement, right? And this idea that with the license to regulate comes the obligation not just to maximize consumer welfare, but to protect other constituencies as well. And look, I'm not saying I think that's the right way to view it at all, but I do think it's playing a role in what we're seeing unfold today. And then uh, finally, tennis, a, a sport you said you'd watch for a number of years and finally have taken up in, in the last year or so. Yeah, no, it's a great sport. And, you know, being remote, working remote, I was you know, looking for something to do that was pandemic safe. And that's tennis, right? You're, you're outside, you're socially distanced. Each player has their own set of tennis balls. So it's something you, we, I could get outside exercise and really blow up some steam. And so it's been great. It's a lifetime sport, something I've been playing with my nine-year-old son. And hopefully one of the silver linings of the last 12 or 18 months and hopefully something that'll stick for the years beyond. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus. 